you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So this is 1 Kings 11, verse 26 to 43. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeredah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hands against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hands against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, a prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Amorites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hands, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I chose who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel." And if you will listen to all I command you, and you will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the name of Solomon reigned, sorry, and the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his fathers. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You can take that one. Thanks so much, Chloe. Thanks for reading us uh, that great passage. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, So excited that this is our last week online. So much looking forward to next week. Uh, As we dive into our text this morning, I'd love to invite you to to pray with me now. Gracious Father, we just uh, thank you for your word to us and, and as we explore the ways that you have been working in history through your people. Lord, pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us tongues to taste your beauty and your glory so that we might know more of who you are this morning. Lord, And I pray that uh, just what I have to say uh, would be just well-pleasing in your sight uh, so that by your Holy Spirit you may just do the miraculous work of transforming us more and more into the image and the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Uh, my boy Elijah, uh, he's eight years old, uh, and that means that uh, a lot of my time at home uh, is often taken up by uh, protecting myself from sudden lightsaber attacks. Uh, you know, there's lots of talk about, you know, Death Stars and Jedis and all those kind of things, and, uh, and then also explaining why uh, I don't think he's quite old enough just yet to watch Star Wars Episode 3, because that one gets a little bit dark, uh, but one day, maybe soon. Uh, but one of the most distinctive parts of uh, any Star Wars movie is just that, that very beginning bit, uh, where the screen is completely black, and then all of a sudden, you know, the orchestra blasts, and the, the Star Wars logo comes up, uh, and then there's that classic yellow text uh, that starts from the bottom of the screen and, and starts making it away across the top uh, and disappears kind of into eternity like it's traveling, uh, traveling across the galaxy. And the purpose of that text is, is to set the scene for the movie. It's explaining the kind of setting and the context for whatever is going on. And it's not so much a, like a recap of previous episodes, but it's, it's often talking about and explaining uh, the, the p- political context and the things that different leaders are doing and the moves that they have made that sets the scene for that movie. Uh, and in a sense, uh, that's what our Bible reading has kind of done for us today. It's, it's set the scene and the background for the situation that we find ourselves in as we look at these two kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Uh, last week, Nick unpacked for us uh, the life of the great King Solomon. Uh, but we saw that, that just sadly and tragically, his heart ultimately turned from the Lord. Uh, And so in 1 Kings chapter 11, as we've just seen, we see that that God actually promises to tear the kingdom apart because of of Solomon's sin, of Israel's sin, following him into that and into their idolatry. And and, and part of the the tragedy tragedy of this entire situation is is just how short-lived were the glory days of the nation of Israel. I mean, you think about it, after, after so long in Egypt and then through their time in the wilderness and the time of judges, they, they finally start to experience the, just the full blessings and the, the prosperity of the covenant promises under, under King David and then under King Solomon and, and then it's gone. We heard uh, in our Bible reading that we were introduced to one of Solomon's own great leaders, uh, a guy named Jeroboam. 
And he's given a prophecy by a prophet by the name of Ahijah, who comes along, he finds Jeroboam on the road, and he, and he kind of gives him a bit of a, an object lesson. So he takes his own new cloak, uh, which is possibly kind of representing how, how young and new the nation of Israel was, and he, and he tears that cloak into 12 pieces, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jeroboam uh, is told to take 10 of those pieces for himself to show that, that after Solomon dies the Lord is actually promising to make him king of 10 of the 12 tribes, and the remaining ones will remain with Solomon's son. Uh, But the promise that the Lord gives to Jeroboam is conditional. We'll read it if you've got your Bibles. Uh, We'll recap a little bit. In 1 Kings 11, 37, uh, he says this, And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires. And you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I commanded you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, then I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. I mean, what what an incredible promise that is. It's it's like as if, as if he's got the potential to be a new David. Well, Solomon finds out about this prophecy about Jeroboam, uh, about him coming, becoming king of ten of the tribes. Uh, and so Solomon, he tries to kill him, and Jeroboam flees to Egypt. Well, eventually Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam becomes king and takes the throne. And so that's where we are today. We're looking at these two kings. Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon. He's the rightful heir to the throne in the line of David. He's the one to whom the the, the, uh, Davidic covenant belongs. And then Jeroboam, who's not from the Davidic line, but is also now promised by the Lord to rule as king as this kingdom divides in two and become kind of like a new David. Uh, this story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam uh, extends kind of over, mainly over chapters 12 to 14. Uh, it'd be great to read that at some time because uh, it has it all. Uh, there's political gamesmanship, there's youthful stupidity, uh, there's mothers playing dress ups, uh, there's prophets who are honest, prophets who lie, prophets who fail, uh, a, a man's hand withers right before his very eyes, uh, another guy gets stoned to death, another gets mauled by a lion, mauled to death by a lion uh, because he ate a sandwich, uh, and then there's a political presser that goes absolutely pear shaped. Uh, and all this is in the word of the Lord for us this morning. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to get to cover all of that today. We'll just be hanging out in chapter 12. But what we see uh, in these two men are two different ways that they have failed to trust the Lord. With Rehoboam, we'll consider uh, stupidity and sovereignty. And then with Jeroboam, we'll consider insecurity and idolatry. So we'll start with Rehoboam. Stupidity and sovereignty. Now, it's important for us to remember that Rehoboam is Solomon's son. 
And the Bible tells us that, that Solomon was the, the wisest man who ever lived, but he also failed to heed his own wisdom. And so in a sense, he's kind of also became the most foolish man who ever lived as well. And if we look at the book of Proverbs that contain just much of uh, Solomon's wisdom, we, we see that much of it is written, particularly the first nine chapters, as a father who is, who is teaching and training his son, and even a king who is teaching and training his son. And so there's, there's this kind of little question that's, that's going on in the background, and that's, which, which dad will Rehoboam follow? Is it the, the, the godly and wise Solomon and all, and all the wisdom of the Proverbs, or is it the foolish and ungodly Solomon? So let's see what Rehoboam does. Uh, we'll start in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, uh, as far as the exact details of the coronation ceremony of Rehoboam, that's, that's basically all we have. Now notice that he doesn't get crowned in Jerusalem where the temple is and the, and the capital is, but in Shechem. And if we look at the other accounts of when David and Solomon, when they were both crowned, in those accounts, we see that there were, there were prayers, there were blessings, there was covenants made with the people before God. But here, we see that, that God is actually suspiciously absent from the story. Well, we'll keep reading. Uh, Jeroboam, uh, well, he's down in Egypt, but he's now heard of Solomon's death, and so he returns from Egypt. And, and Jeroboam and all the assembly, all the people, come before Rehoboam and say this in verse 4. They say, Your father, that is Solomon, made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And so basically they're saying that, hey, if you start treating us better, then we'll be faithful to you. And Rehoboam says, well, all right, uh, give me three days to kind of think about it and get some counsel, and then I'll get back to you. We'll have a, we'll have a press conference, and I'll let you know uh, if these restrictions are going to continue. Uh, which, you know, strangely sounds familiar at this time, doesn't it? Uh, and Rehoboam, he, he starts well. Uh, let's read verse 6 to see what he does. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to the, this people today, and serve them, and speak good words to them when, they answer, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men that the old men gave him, and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten your yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, 
I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So who, who is it that Rehoboam is going to listen to? Is it going to be the, the older, wiser men who provided counsel to his dad? And they say, hey, if, if, if you ease up and you show them some favor, then hey, they're going to serve you forever and, and you'll be set as king. Or does he uh, listen to his college fraternity? You know, his bros, his posse, his, his brothers from another mother who say, no, no, don't just tighten the screws on these punks. You, you need to make your, your old man's harshness feel like a warm hug in comparison. You need to just come down so heavy on these guys that, that they won't know what hit them. You need, to, you need to lead with a show of force. And so uh, foolishly and stupidly, he takes the advice of his mates and he holds uh, his press conference, verses 13, 14, he says, uh, And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old man had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And now, when the, the people feel like they're, you know, they're getting squeezed by the governing powers, uh, surprisingly, it doesn't go so well. The, the people of Israel, that, they now feel like they're just completely alienated because they're no longer being treated like they're part of the covenant kingdom. And so they, they say in a couple of verses, you know, what, what portion do we now have in David? It's like we don't even belong to this nation anymore. But Rehoboam, uh, he decides to double down. And, and so he sends a guy named Adoram to impose his forced labor on the people. Uh, this guy is met with a bit of a, uh, a rocky reception. Uh, I mean that literally because they stoned him to death. We see that in verse 18. And so Rehoboam, he jumps in his chariot and flees back to Jerusalem. And then the, the ten northern tribes crown Jeroboam as their king. And the, the kingdom, this is God's very own people who he, he rescued out of Egypt. Those, those twelve tribes, that, that one family, are now divided all because of one political decision. So what is it, why does it seemingly just fall apart so fast? Well, it can be tempting for us to, uh, to just moralize the story. You know, we might be, we might be tempted to, to think here that the lesson is, is about how we, we must listen to the, to the wise counsel of those who are older than us. And if Rehoboam had just heeded their advice, then maybe things would have gone differently. Or, or perhaps we think that this is a, is a lesson in, in leadership, how it's better to be persuasive and, and winsome and, and generous rather than trying to lead with fear and intimidation. Or perhaps if we, we stretch it a bit, we might think that this is, this is really about the, the perils of peer pressure. And if Rehoboam, he, he, if he just didn't give in to the, the foolishness of his buddies and, and tried to lead in a different way, then perhaps this whole disaster could have been avoided. But the text actually stops us from, from doing any of that, even though those things might be wise and good, because it, the text actually tells us exactly why this happened the way it did. 
And so verse 15 is the lens that we need to view this whole account through. So this is what it says, verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. See, as much as this is an example of the stupidity of man, it's actually about the sovereignty of God. See, it was a, it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. And why? And so that he might fulfill his word. That the, that the kingdom would be divided and that Jeroboam would be king. And so what happened that day happened because it was brought about by the Lord. And so here we, we see both the, the subtlety and the certainty of God's sovereignty. I mean, do we see how it's described? Verse 15, it says that it was a, it was a turn of affairs. It was like the, the circumstances that, that come about. And so there's a, there's a subtlety to God's sovereignty. See, God didn't, didn't force anyone to act against their own will. It actually came about through Rehoboam's own sinfulness and stupidity. It came about through uh, his buddy's foolishness. It came about through the, the people of Israel all exercising their own freedom. They, they simply did what they wanted to do. And so there's a subtlety in terms of the way it all kind of worked out. And, that the, and yet there's certainty because it was the Lord who brought it to pass. So even human sin and stupidity is under the sovereignty of God. And, and so how is it that how does God use the, the sinfulness and the stupidity of people to, to bring about his own good and holy will? How, how does he use and ordain sin for his own ends without actually being the, the author of that sin or culpable for it? Well, in many ways, that is, that is one of the mysteries of God. But we, we see time and time again all throughout Scripture that God uses sin sinlessly. That God doesn't sin, but he sinlessly uses sin so that he might make himself known and pour out grace and mercy on his people. One of the ways that we see this uh, clear in Scripture is in Acts uh, 2.23, where, where Peter in his sermon at Pentecost says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so here we, we see both God's sovereignty, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and full knowledge of God. And also side by side, human responsibility, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so Scripture never tries to pit uh, divine sovereignty against human responsibility, but it constantly holds those two things together. That men and women are completely responsible for their actions, and yet, yet God is meticulously sovereign over all that comes to pass. See, Psalm 115 verse 3 says that, that our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Now, perhaps when you, when you hear that, maybe your, your first response is, is kind of one, one of fear, God's going to do all that he pleases, but... But what is it that God takes pleasure in? Well, God takes pleasure in, 
in loving and caring for his children. His, his joy is in being able to, to pour out blessing and grace upon those who belong to him. And, and this is why the, the subtlety and the certainty of the sovereignty of the, of the Lord over all human stupidity and sinfulness, why that sovereignty should come to bear on our sanity. So God is not, God is not taken by surprise. In, in the craziness of you know, all that's going on in the world at the moment, the, the craziness across our country and our state, and, and maybe it's just the, the, the craziness that's going on in your own life. You know, what if... Just in this, in this moment that you are in, what if, what if you really believe that it has been ordained by the God who, who loves you so much that he sent the second person of the Godhead to, to die for you in your place? If it is true that this moment has been ordained by God, then, then what would it look like for you to, to live by faith? What what, what will it look like for you to to joyfully trust and obey him? There's there's an interesting moment uh, in this next section. Uh, And so the the, the kingdom has divided. And so Rehoboam, he he hightails it back to Jerusalem and starts to mass an an army of 180,000 troops in in an attempt to, to restore the kingdom. To, to bring them back together. I mean, and you know, you think, well, sure, surely that's what the Lord would want, right? You know, to, for the kingdom to be unified again. But the Lord, uh, God sends another prophet who says this in verse 23. It says, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the, all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. And so they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Now, in many ways, this is, this is a bit of a surprising response from Rehoboam, that, it, that, that he would actually listen and obey the Lord. But, but the division of the kingdom is is in reality, it's a, it's a hard providence from God. And we see that it is an evidence of God's grace that, that Rehoboam actually accepts this hard providence and, and, and be, that it's being from the Lord and that he would actually withdraw. And so maybe the, maybe the difficulties and, and, and the trials that you're in are actually a, a hard providence from the Lord. Maybe it's the result of your own sinfulness or, or foolishness like it is here with Rehoboam. Or perhaps it's the, the sinfulness and foolishness of those around you. But it, but it isn't always God's will to just fix everything in your life. There are times where we need to just simply yield our messed up circumstances and, and resign ourselves to the hard providences of God. The Lord may not always remove the thorn of a hard providence, but his grace is always sufficient. And wisdom is, is, is living by faith and complete trust in the Lord as his grace enables in those times. And, and that's why the Apostle Paul says to us, 
Those famous words in, in Romans 8, 28, that, and we know that for those who love God, all things, even, even those hard promises, even those uh, providences, even those, those messed up circumstances, that all things work together for good for those who are called, called according to his purpose. See, that it all ultimately works for good for those who belong to him. And so that's Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son. We see his stupidity and sovereignty. And after that, we'll move on to Jeroboam and see his insecurity and idolatry. Uh, One of the most, I guess, kind of popular, uh, common pieces of advice given these days is uh, perhaps whenever anyone needs to make a decision and they're they're not really sure what to do, the the counsel and advice they are inevitably given is, is what? You need to... You need to listen to your heart. What is it that your heart is telling you to do? What does your heart want? And, and whatever that is, that, that must be the right thing. And, and that's what it is that you should do. Well, uh, the problem with that advice is that the Bible actually tells us that uh, our hearts are deceitful above all things. Uh, so let's see what happens when Jeroboam listens to his heart. We'll look at verse 25. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their lord, the, the, uh, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me, and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, what do we see here in, in his heart? Is, is it full of, of wisdom and godly counsel? No, it's actually, it's actually full of insecurity. So he's, he's scared that if the people go to the temple and, and in Jerusalem to worship the Lord like they're meant to, then they remember that, that Rehoboam is in the line of David, and so he must be the, the real king, and then that therefore he must be a, 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 a false king, and so he's, he's scared for his life. But do you see the, the irony here? See, the only reason that Jeroboam is king is because it was the Lord's will. Like as we read before, that it, the Lord said that he would make him king over, 20, uh, over 10 of the tribes. And we'll read again in, in uh, back in chapter 11, verses 37 and 38, the promises of God to him was, and I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in, keeping, uh, in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, then I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. I mean, what, what just an amazing set of promises that, that you shall reign over all that your soul desires. He, he basically gets the same set of promises that David gets. But, but we see that these promises are conditional. The Jeroboam has to obey God. He, he has to keep his, his statutes and commandments, and which as king includes leading the people in the proper worship of the Lord. But now Jeroboam is he's worried that if he 
if the people go to worship that same God who made him king, then he'd lose everything that that God had promised to give him and had given him. But do you see how, how just insecure he must have been to, to reason like this? I mean, if you're still kind of trying to wrap your, your head around the reasoning and trying to make sense of it, then, well, you've actually wrapped your head around it because it actually doesn't make sense. But, but that's what insecurity does. If his security was, was in the law, then, then he would have reigned over all that his soul had desired. But because his security wasn't in the law, then he was just completely and utterly insecure. And that insecurity led him to where insecurity always leads. And that's to believing lies and to idolatry. See, if your security is, is not in the law, then, then you stop living in the, the light of the truth of God. And so you start to be, believe lies and, will, lies and will eventually worship something else. Uh, it's actually fitting that earlier this year we made our way through the book of Exodus because this episode actually echoes uh, some of the key events of the Exodus. In some ways, Jeroboam is, a, is kind of like a new Moses who's, who's leading the people out of under the oppression of Rehoboam, who's a bit like Pharaoh. But instead of being a new Moses, he ends up being an old Aaron. Uh, and so if you remember from our series in uh, Exodus, you might, some of this might sound familiar. Read from verse 28. It says, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places. He appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day on the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So rather than trusting and obeying the God who had made him king, he goes about creating an entire counterfeit religion with golden calves that he made and his own made-up temples and his own made-up priests and his own made-up feasts on dates that he made up for himself. And this, just this basic insecurity and failure to trust in the promises of God just has, has devastating effects on the entire kingdom. See, when you... When you stop trusting in the Lord, it's not that you stop trusting. It's, it's that you begin to look somewhere else to find your security. And the more that you do that, the, the greater the grip that those things will have on your life to the point where you're no longer capable of releasing those things that make you feel so secure. 
And you can no longer fathom then what it, what it truly means to entrust yourself to the, to the strong and secure arms of Jesus. See, when we, when we fail to, to just trust in the, the simple and sweet promises of God in Jesus that, that gives us and promises us peace and security, we, we find that we have to work just incredibly hard to, to build up some other form of security. I mean, I mean, why is it that we're, we're, we're more prosperous than ever? We're, we're more technologically advanced than ever. We have more effective medicines and health treatments, more, more knowledge and insight than ever before. And yet as a society, we're more insecure than ever. And well, ultimately, it's because we've listened to the lie. That these are your gods, O Melbourne. These are your gods, O Victoria. These are your gods, O Australia, who will save you and give you that security that you desire. And this results in just like a, just an inordinate expense. You know, the, the financial cost or the emotional expense or the relational expense in, in just trying to attain that thing that you believe will, will ultimately give you that sense of security that you so desperately long for. And this is what we see in Jeroboam, that rather than trusting in the, the simple and the sweet and the explicit promises of God, he spends just an extraordinary amount of time and energy and resources trying to build another system, a, a counterfeit religion, trying to control everyone and everything around him. He is trying to be God in a vain attempt to keep the very thing that had been promised to him by the true God. And, and what happened? Well, ultimately, as we go on and read in the book of 1 Kings, he loses it all. And he actually becomes a kind of uh, counterpart, an evil counterpart to David. In terms of David is, is the good king that should be emulated, and Jeroboam is the evil one. See, there are really only two options. That you trust in God and in the promises that we have from him through Jesus Christ or one form of idolatry or another. And those two things always go together, insecurity and idolatry. And as kind of counterintuitive as it seems, surrendering to God and serving his kingdom is the, is the antidote to both insecurity and idolatry. Because at the, at the very bottom of our insecurities is, is simply the sin of unbelief. We, we don't believe in the goodness of God. And we fail to believe in the love of God. So what, are, what are you scared to trust God with? Because you're, you're, you believe that that trusting God with it might cause you to lose it. And so the, the tighter that you try to hold on to it, the, the, that sense of security that you believe it will give you and provide, that, that will only become just more and more elusive. And so you have to work harder and harder. You have to control more and more and spend more and more and worry more and more. And at the bottom of all of that is, is, is just believing the, guy that, the, the lie that at the end of the day that, that God isn't really that good and he doesn't really love you. 
and that his promises aren't really true. We read before from Romans 8, 28, those great promises about how God sovereignly uses all things together for the good of his children. And just a few verses later, in verse 32, it says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See how our insecurities expose the ways in which we we disbelieve the goodness and the love of God. And so if you ever doubt how much God loves you, the the, the promises that God has for you in Jesus, the the goodness of God towards you, the the faithfulness of his promises, then, then look to Jesus. Then look to the cross. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give you all that you need? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give you all that he has promised? How? It's, it's not possible because of who God is. See, the, the only place that you'll find true and real security is in Jesus. So friends, why don't you, why don't you place your trust and your faith in him today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we just want to pause and and take this moment to recognize that you are our good and loving Father, and and you're just completely and meticulously sovereign over this moment. May we find just such great comfort and peace in that. And by your grace, grant that we might yield to you in in times of your hard provinces that we might experience, knowing that it is your grace that is sufficient, that you work all things for our good, not according to our purposes, but to your purposes. Lord, if there are things beside you that we have sought to, to find our security in and to place our trust in, fueled by our insecurities and our idolatries, Lord. We just, want to, we just want to lay those things down before you and confess our unbelief in your goodness and in your love and in your faithfulness. Lord, may we, may we hold on just with full assurance to your promises to us in Christ Jesus. And whenever there's a moment that we doubt your goodness and love, we ask that we would remember that you gave Jesus up for us, died in our place so that we might be reconciled to you and that we can be confident of your very great promises. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the mighty, mighty name of our Lord and Jesus, Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.